0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 108 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest today is Niloufar Razi Howe. She's a respected technology executive, entrepreneur, board member, and investor having served as Chief Strategy Officer for Endgame and later RSA Security. She's a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a recorded future board member. Our conversation touches a range of topics, from her start as an attorney and entrepreneur, her shift to venture capital, and her executive-level assignments as Chief Strategy Officer. We'll get her take on where she thinks the VC money will be headed in cybersecurity, as well as her thoughts on why it's important to make time for giving back. Stay with us.
0: It's a hard one to describe because it feels like a professional ping pong in some ways. Mm. Um, I started my professional life as a lawyer, got involved as a lawyer with, with uh, the business issues that my clients were facing. I was in doing uh, entertainment law, actually, at the time and corporate law. Um, From there, I went to McKinsey because the business issues were so interesting to me. At McKinsey, I got involved with the new ventures practice, which was uh, McKinsey working with earlier stage technology companies and uh, got the tech bug, started a company, sold it, joined the venture capital fund that had funded me and kind of haven't looked back. Um, All of that was in California. And when 9-11 happened, like many people, I woke up and said, "Okay." What am I going to do to contribute to trying to make the world a safe place? In the process of thinking about that, I met uh, a group of folks who were pretty impressive, former director of the CIA, former director of NSA, former head of DARPA, who were uh, developing a plan to have an investment community response to 9-11, which is most of our critical infrastructure, most of our infrastructure is not owned by the government. And so, if we're not securing that and helping enterprises, then we're not really making the world safer. So, the goal—and this was immediately after 9/11—was to raise a fund focused on investing in dual-use national security um, technologies. And so, I left the comfortable world of California, <laughs> you know, media tech, consumer tech investing, to mm-hmm. come lead the charge in D.C. with uh, with Paladin Capital Group, and that's how I got involved with. Cybersecurity, national security, um, type issues. Um, was a paladin for close to 10 years and uh, kind of got the operating bug again and joined uh an earlier stage cybersecurity company, Endgame, which is in the endpoint protection space. Mm-hmm. Took that company through a pretty incredible transformation, uh, left to go to RSA, which is one of the big companies in the cybersecurity space. In the meantime, um, I've kept a hand in uh, policy through work with think tanks and with government and uh, advise actually the U.S. government intelligence community on cybersecurity issues. So I sort of live at the intersection of policy, tech, innovation and government when it comes to cyber. Uh, And that's that's the place where I'm intersectional.
1: Well, uh, take us through for folks who, who might not understand what the responsibilities are. Um, what were you doing when you were a chief strategy officer, both at Endgame and at RSA?
0: Sure. So I love that title because nobody knows what it means, so you can pretty (laughs) much create whatever job you want. But the way I think about it is, um, you know, you have a product strategy. You have business development partnership uh, strategy. um, You have a financial strategy around fundraising. um, You have an acquisition strategy. All of those things need to roll up to a... Big corporate strategy. So, so, my job was really to make sure every that we had the right strategy looking out three to five years. We understood where the world was headed, where our markets were headed, where our co- competition was headed, where our customers were headed, and that all the pieces of the organization were aligned to to deliver that. To do that, I, I you know the functions that naturally come with it are corporate planning, business development, M and A. Uh, but in both those companies, I also had uh, pieces of of the operations. And, and that really sort of gave the strategy team the ability to mostly influence, but also drive um, some of the work that needed to happen to make sure we were getting where we needed to go.
1: Are there misperceptions or, or common mistakes that folks make when it comes to uh, having a chief strategy officer or, or the interaction you had with the other executives in those organizations?
0: So it's not a very well understood role and it can mean a lot of different things. Typically in most large companies, the strategy person is really the MA and a person. Um, mm. So I've kind of defined it a little bit differently. I, I sort of view it as being the business partner to the CEO and that's the role that I've played. Uh, and it's an incredibly satisfying role to work shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the CEO and with the other executives to make sure we're all thinking about the long game and aligning to do that and not getting so pulled into the near-term tactics that we do things that are counterproductive to long-term growth. It's not a role that uh, different versions of the role exist depending on the company, depending on who the CEO is. You know, a CEO who's a technical founder may view it very differently than Frankly, you know, a CEO who's uh, super well, well-versed well in strategy themselves may not need a chief strategy officer. So it it really, it depends on the company, uh, how the role is defined.
1: And how did it differ at a, at a company more in a startup stage like Endgame versus a large organization well-established like RSA?
0: Just the speed at which you execute on decisions changes, right? If, hmm. if you're on... Uh, you know, in a small company, every day is existential, and you're really trying to create value every single moment. Um, you know, you're up against headwinds, uh, incumbents, uh, competition. Uh, you know, you're always uh, uh, in the mode of, of raising money to make sure that you can fund your growth. Um, but but the issues aren't necessarily that different from an organizational perspective. The the place where it's different is if you need to um, adapt your strategy, adjust your strategy, there's a big difference when you have, you know, 100 customers versus you have 10,000 customers. So the speed at which you can adjust is really different when you have to service that marketplace. And that's why there's there's a place for incumbents in large companies and there's a place for innovators and disruptors uh, in the space.
1: Now, uh, based on your experience there, but also uh, the time you spent at Paladin, um, what sort of advice do you have for startups when it comes to planning their own strategy
0: well each stage of growth has a different thing that has to be um, that you have to hit and, and it's sort of the existential issue as a startup you need to solve a market pain point and and the only focus really has to be to solve that problem better than anyone else in the world so in that early phase it's about getting a um, you know getting the tech, done getting the product to market finding the early customers uh and it's you just have to have laser focus on that in in that early stage early stage role as you as you grow there's a whole host of other issues that that you have to layer on top of it and how you scale your business model starts mattering a lot they there's a great book um uh the hard thing about hard things that talks about these different stages of growth and the different skill sets you need sometimes you have a team that scales and sometimes you have a team that needs to have To make adjustments on the way each each phase of it uh is fascinating and different and part of what everyone needs to know is what do they love to do as they go through this
1: do you find that sometimes there's a mismatch there that uh people find themselves in a role that maybe they're not best fit for but there might be something else that they that they could contribute to the organization in in, uh, more useful ways of
0: course so this is one of the biggest issues when it comes to talent right people join a company because they believe in the mission and the we aspect of it. Um, And people leave companies because they don't believe that either their work is valued or it's the highest value use of their talents. So those mismatches are what gets really painful. And um, it happens all the time. And either you've outgrown your role or the company has outgrown um, the particular skill set you have. And it's really important for both sides to have Very open dialogue Um, when it comes to growth. uh, Folks need to believe not just that they're part of something great, but that their contribution to it is valued and important.
1: Now, you are a board member uh, at Recorded Future. Um, I wonder if you could give us some insights into what is the role of a board member at a company like Recorded Future and what attracted you to that role?
0: Uh, sure. So I've I've uh, tracked uh, Recorded Future from its early days. And uh, Christopher Allberg, the founder, um, uh, CEO of the company, is just a phenomenal entrepreneur, and he's really solving an important problem for industry. The The role of a board member is multifold. First of all, you really are there from a governance perspective, representing all of the shareholders. So your job is you have a fiduciary obligation to the company. You have a fiduciary obligation to the shareholders. And your job is just to make sure that the company is really maximizing value for all the shareholders. In that process, um, what you're doing is providing guidance to the team. Your job is not to execute. Your job is not to operationalize. Your job is really to provide guidance uh, to the management team and, um, And the great thing about working with fast-growing companies like Recorded Future is um, part of providing guidance is just also opening up your network and helping them in every possible way um, on on the different things that they need to accomplish, whether it's uh, introductions to customers, to partners, to potential investors down the road. You know, when when a company is growing, it's it's really fun to be uh, part of that team, even when it's just as a board member. Uh, you're sort of one step removed uh, from the process, but it's it's a phenomenal thing to be a part of.
1: Do you have any uh, advice or recommendations for folks who are on the technical side of the house of how best to communicate to the board?
0: The communication should really happen through the CEO when it comes to the technology, the technology strategy, the product strategy, and really it's the CEO who guides that conversation in terms of what the board needs to know, what the board doesn't need to know. Having said that, when you're in that room, what matters most is to be able to tell the story. The art of storytelling, no matter what your role is in a company is is phenomenally important and that's what um, inspires and motivates people. So even as an engineering leader, even as a technical reader uh, leader, even as a you know data science uh, leader, you should have a story you're telling about what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish with the work that you're doing. Um, that that always uh, is compelling to a board.
1: I, I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about threat intelligence and uh, specifically the role that you see it playing in organizations defending themselves.
0: When you look at the threat landscape today, just um, playing, uh, it, th- there's a lot you need to do to protect your networks and ha- get the basics uh, of security architecture right, um, operationalizing all the all the products that exist, in order to know what's going on inside your ne- network. But unless you really understand what's also going outside, going on outside your network from a threat perspective, you actually you don't have a holistic picture of um, what you need to be doing in order to instrument your security products. So these days, given how expansive the threat landscape is, given that the perimeter basically doesn't exist anymore. And given the number of threat actors who exist from nation states who are uh, absolutely focused on different industry verticals to um, criminal networks, to individual criminals, to um, other hacktivists, et cetera, you have to have a sense of what's going on in in the threat landscape. And you need to do it in a way that it can be operationalized. So just getting research reports um, is, is a great start. But having that threat intel feed into your, um, into your security product so that you have real-time information and you're instrumenting them the right way and looking for the right things is the future of security.
1: Where do you see the industry going when it comes to investment? Where, where do you think we're going to see the capital going?
0: There has been so much capital flowing into the cybersecurity market. And right. a lot of us thought it would naturally slow down because the exits have not kept up with the investments. There have been some really good exits. But for the most part, we have $5 billion a year invested in the cybersecurity market. We have somewhere between, depending on whose report you read, 4,000 to 10,000 cybersecurity companies. So it feels like everything is getting funded and the wheat and the chaff are not yet separating early on. Having said that, there are very few companies that are able to scale relative to the number that are getting funded. So we know that there are market segments that are essentially features. Um, Some Mm. of those are really important um, and they get picked up very fast. So we saw that in the orchestration automation market. For example, when when that market emerged, we knew it was important. We knew it was going to be part of something bigger. Um, and then those companies are getting picked up pretty fast for really really good multiples. And that's that that's a new capability that was being brought to market. The other thing that's happening though is that uh, you know when I was a, when I started out as a VC a long time ago, when one company got market uh, got funded in a market segment. You thought really, really hard about funding the second, third, fourth, fifth company in that market segment. Hmm. Um, Today, we have market segments where we have 30, 40 competitors. And it's crazy. And some of those markets are not new. You know, there may be existing incumbents whose products are just good enough. They may not be great. um, But the improvements uh, are incremental. So uh, I think on the one hand, there's really good investment dollars going into companies that are providing new capabilities and focused on new threat vectors, cloud access, security brokers, a few years ago, I mean, that was a new threat vector that we had to, um, we had to address. There's still a lot of money going into me to companies as well. Someday this will separate when capital isn't as free flowing, but it's not happening yet.
1: And, and that's a, that's a surprise that we, we were, I guess it sounds like you were expecting that to maybe already have taken place.
0: I would have expected the investment market to already rationalize um, itself, mm. but but it but it hasn't happened, and I would have expected consolidation to have already happened, but it hasn't happened because there's been money going in to continue to fund companies that really should get picked up. Um, so someday there'll be a there'll be some sort of correction. In the meantime, I think um, some great companies have emerged. Uh, this year is a good year for IPOs and acquisitions, and we're seeing that. The more cybersecurity companies go public, the more acquisitions they're going to make. Um, so we'll see some co- consolidation happening over time. Um, we're seeing some companies pick up their acquisition pace. You know, Splunk and, and, Pal- uh, and uh, Palo Alto have been great that way, Cisco has been uh, very active. Uh, and we expect that that will continue. But it still doesn't make up for the number of new companies that are getting created every quarter.
1: I want to touch on some of the work you do uh, outside of the industry itself, some of the volunteer experience, because you you have quite a, an impressive uh, uh, range of work that you've done there. You, you were on the board of directors for Global Rights Partners for Justice. You've served on the, the board of uh, Sibley Memorial Hospital um, what do those activities uh, do for you personally? why Why do you find it important to invest your time in those sorts of things?
0: it's It's funny. I sort of uh, when I think about compensation, I think about three different types of compensation uh, that matter. One is equity compensation, one is cash compensation, and one is psychic compensation. And mm. to some extent that psychic compensation is the most important. As, uh you know over over the past however many years as I've you know raised three kids and been full-time sometimes with overlapping jobs I've had more than one friend say hey you should let go of some of these volunteer activities and I have to tell them but it feeds the soul um, I'm not if I'm gonna let go of anything I'd rather let go of making money before I let go of 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 the organizations that I'm part of I'm an immigrant you know I went through a revolution uh I have uh you know I worked in some, places doing volunteer work overseas, places like Cambodia, where I saw some pretty difficult things happening to people. And I really believe every individual has an obligation, um, especially if they're doing well, to give back to society, however they – in whatever way they feel passionate about giving back and – Uh, Human rights and international development is something that matters uh, a lot to me, fighting for human rights globally. The board I'm on now is an organization called IREX, um, which is focused on developing just societies by promoting um, social justice and leadership development uh, across the world. Now, one Mm -hmm. of the things we do there, which is really important and ties back to cyber, is media literacy. So we've had a program um, in the Ukraine, given all of Russia's activities in the Ukraine, teaching media literacy and how to discern real from fake news. Hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. interestingly, we're bringing those programs to the U.S. now because we're facing the same misinformation campaigns that the Ukrainians have faced for a number of years, and we're piloting those programs here. So sometimes it's not as disjointed as it might seem. It's really about feeding the soul. My work with Sibley Hospital, which is part of Johns Hopkins, I've always had a fascination with healthcare, But when you serve on the on the board of a hospital, you also get to help people you care a lot about. Um, You know, as as you get older, one of the things that happens is children get sick, parents get sick, friends get sick. And the ability to help them um, through the things you learn being uh, about medicine uh, through work like that just gives uh, uh, is really a good thing to be able to do.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting insight because I think a lot of folks, particularly when they get caught up in the velocity of a startup, I think it's it's easy to overlook or, or to push aside, you know, what you describe as that feeding of the soul. That these, the time you spend on these sorts of activities can can give back more than what you put in.
0: It, it can. I mean, this is uh, um, there was this uh, book that came out last year called The Book of Joy. And it's it's actually a really fascinating read. Um, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama got together for a weekend, and a hmm. writer captured their conversation. And I'm not going to be able to recreate this now, but the, <laughs> but the Dalai Lama ca- talked about the different pillars of human joy, and um, one of the pillars is generosity. Um, and and the reason for that is is twofold. One is uh, obviously when when you give it makes you feel better if if that giving is is productive and really sort of leads to outcomes but the other thing is it also makes you forget about your own problems (laughs) because now you're Hmm. focused on someone else's problems and both those things are a huge positive um i i i mean i care about the mission of the organizations i've been a part of but i do think to be a well-rounded human and and to um to find moments of joy in the world it's really important um to be generous and find the places where you can give back and put all of your experiences to use uh, in a way that makes the world better. We do that in cybersecurity. I think we all feel like we do that with our day jobs as well, because it tends to be mission focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for me, these activities, uh, again, especially around things like international de- development and human rights, which mean a lot to me, has been uh, soul enriching.
1: The recorded future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.